Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 13. After Hours with Douglas Gresham. (laughs) Friends, welcome back to Pints with Jack, your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we are eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. This week, though, is different. We have an after-hours episode where we'll be interviewing a special guest who we interviewed previously this year and got incredible feedback from, so I'm excited to have him back, Douglas Gresham. So Douglas Gresham, welcome. Well, thank you. Good to be here. And quick little biography of Douglas. He's an American-British stage and voiceover actor, biographer, film producer, and executive record producer. He's written an autobiography called Lenten Lands, which chronicles his early life He's also written a book titled Jack's Life about his stepfather, C.S. Lewis. Further, he is one of two sons of Joy Davidman, who we have learned a lot about from Addie Callahan and himself a few months ago when he was on and discussed on many different occasions on the podcast. And so many of you guys, this is the biography, but most of you have probably heard the first interview. If you haven't, we will link that. Go listen to it. This is where we learn about his childhood, where we learn about... um, growing up with C.S. Lewis, what he learned from him. But if you listen to it, you probably learned that he has an incredibly fascinating life that he's been blessed with uh, through Christ to have been able to live. And so I wanted to have him back on so badly. And so he's been so gracious to agree to come on. And so that's what we're going to do today. This is going to be about his life and the principles he's learned and the spiritual journey and what has brought him to here. So I am so excited, Douglas. Well, we might be talking about this kind of thing all day because I, you, you mentioned a few of the things that I've done, but I've done so many things it's ridiculous. I mean, I've been a powder monkey on an explosives gang. Um, <laughs> I've flown airplanes for fun. <laughs> I've done all sorts of weird things in my life. Um, and as you say, thank God, God was looking after me because I probably wouldn't be here if he hadn't. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've done huge numbers of, of jobs and things and uh, I've never been fired, funnily enough. You'd imagine the person like me would get fired from some job sooner or later, but I managed to get through about 30 different jobs and never be fired. Uh, so the Lord was obviously looking after me in those things. But uh, yeah, shoot, what would you like me to talk about? <laughs> oh, we have so much stuff. Let me start with the quote of the week, because this is from your, your Lenten Lands book, The Epilogue, and this is really what I want to start with too. So not only is it the quote of the week, but I would love to get your thoughts expanding on it, because mm-hmm. Out of Lenten lands, this hit me a lot too. The same as the last quote that I brought, which was a lot of times the end is not an end, but a beginning. Uh, this one just hit me. And so it's a little bit longer. So it's a, about a paragraph. So bear with me here, but it's fantastic. You wrote, much has happened in my life since I wrote this book. Much has changed in both my life and myself. For details of this, you will have to wait for the next autobiographical tome. But for the moment, suffice it to say that I now live in Ireland and I've committed my life to Christ in his service. I made the leap from nominal Anglicanism to committed Christianity, following Mary some years after her own decision. As you will know, if you have read this far, I always believed in God and in Jesus Christ. My problem was not one of belief, but one of arrogance and pride. I did not want to submit my life to an authority other than my own, and it took me a long time to realize that I am simply not qualified to run it myself." That hit me. That is, 
<laughs> that is a profound statement. There is a lot in there of pre-conversion, post-conversion. It's very true. And it's also, I think, true in the way that people need to know about it. A lot of us go through life leading what we think is a good life and we believe in God and all that sort of stuff. But in actual fact, most of the time, we're just blowing our, our own trumpet. You know, it's just we make a fuss of things that we, we think we ought to and we don't make a fuss of things we, we shouldn't. And we think we're good because of that. But it's just not true. You know, it's something that I think people should know. Incidentally, you mentioned the fact that I had, uh, I had written two books, um, one of which is Lenten Land. But the other one is called Jack's Life. And it's a biography I wrote um, by request by people about Jack, obviously, his life. And the interesting thing to me about it is that only one person in all of the people who write blobs in, in, you know, on, the, on the internet about books, only one person realized I wrote it for children. Huh. It was supposed to be for children. And one bloke finally said, it's almost as though Mr. Gresham were writing for children. I thought, ding, and Americans finally sussed it out. <laughs> Why do you think they didn't recognize that? I don't know. I, I really don't know because the way I wrote it is obviously uh, childlike in a sense. I think so. Anyway, you'll have to get the book and find out. But um, it's called Jack's Life and it's easy to come by, I think. But it was yeah. just, it, I just find that so amusing that all of these critics – only one of them picked up the fact that it was an actual fact written for children. And I'm very glad it was because I've had an awful lot of people, both adult and younger people, who've enjoyed it very much. So it's good. Anyway, what would you want me to ask? I'm sure you asked me a question. I've forgotten what it was. No, no, you're fine. Uh, I'm curious. So in that, that quote that I read, you talk about you, you have this pre-conversion, post-conversion where you were driven by pride. You had belief, but it wasn't a surrender to the authority. What would you say it was in your life that eventually made you realize that? Because if there's a lot of us that are probably in that camp and we don't even know it. Like what experiences, people in your life, events led you in an ultimately that point, if there is a single point where it's just like hit you and you're like, yep, I need to do this. I think the whole, whole lot of things ganged up on me. In other words, I think I think Jesus was probably saying, "Right, this guy this guy's had enough fun of his own. We need him now. Let's 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 show him the real truth." Um, yeah. It's a whole lot of things. It's very difficult to remember what they all were, but in the end, I had made some very stupid mistakes, done some very stupid things, and hurt a lot of people as a result. And I was sort of mulling this over on one occasion, and I thought to myself, "Well, you know, look, I'm a farmer, which I am, by the way. I'm a farmer. I was a farmer for years. I was a farmer, and I said to myself, well." What do I do if my tractor breaks down? I thought, well, I go to the manual on it, look it up, how to fix it. And I thought, well, to myself, I thought, well, now that I'm broken, because I was, I got to the stage where I just couldn't stand myself or anything else much at that time. And I suddenly realized that I was just living on my own pride and arrogance and, and being a darn nuisance to other people and hurting people because of it. And I thought, well, you know, obviously I'm broken. What on earth is the maker's manual for the human being? I suddenly realized that was the Bible, and I'd better read it and find out a bit more about what I should be thinking about. I read the Bible, uh, I read, and in the end, I wound up reading seven different versions of it, and they'd all dif differ from each other quite markedly. But I realized that it was, it was me who was broken and not the people I was dealing with. And um, I, went, I told Mary that I, I had to go and, and, and talk to somebody about this. And we went to a very fine elderly man who was the, uh, the head of, a, of the um, Anglican church in Tasmania at the time, northern Tasmania. And we, I sat down. Mary came with me, and I sat down with him, and he, he and I talked for quite some time. And I just burst into floods of tears and couldn't stop. And um, 
at that point, I realized that I had to actually go, not only just go to the maker's manual, but do what the book said. And so I started living that sort of life instead. One of the problems with it, though, and it, it, it's more a problem to other people than it is to me, is that I've realized there are an awful lot of churchians rather than Christians in churches. And I went to several churches and found I couldn't really stay there for very long. Um, not that the people were nasty or anything. It's just that it's hard, I suppose it's a bit hard to describe, but I believe that Christianity is not a matter of going to church. Going to church might help you become a Christian or might teach you how to be a better one, but it doesn't make you a Christian. And I have been to churches where most of the people are churchians. They worship the church, sure, but they don't go out and help anybody. They stay away from people who are sick. They stay away from people who need help. And that doesn't gel with me for some reason. I just, I just can't really take that on board at all. So eventually I got to the stage where I left. I won't go to a church that I can't believe in. And I believe in what they teach in terms of Christianity. But being a Christian is not a matter of reading the Bible, though it would help you. It's not a matter of going to church, though that should help you. It's a matter of figuring out what God wants you to do and then doing it, even if it costs you a lot, even if it hurts you a lot. And that sort of is how I try to, to live my life. The result is that I have kind of God-appointed godchildren by the handful all over the world, and people who were in strife, I mean, people in trouble, people who had a difficulty. And, and I found out something that to me is very important. Other people might think it's silly. And that is that helping people where you can and when you can is the most wonderful sensation when you have succeeded in helping them that you can ever experience. It's not like riding a roller coaster or paying money for a movie or whatever. You suddenly realize that this person who maybe weeks ago, months ago, years ago, was in desperate trouble is now happy again. And the fact that you were able to help with that is enormously gratifying, not only to yourself, but to the person concerned, and I think probably to God too. You can soon tell, I think, because God tells you what he wants you to do in various strange ways. And there are times when you think, wow, I better get on with that. And you, you go and do it and things change. My stepfather was a bit like this in himself, in fact, very much like it. When he heard of someone who needed money, he would usually anonymously come up with a lot of money and, and as much as they needed and make sure they got it. And he did this to such an extent that he lived in poverty a lot of the time. And I realized later when I look back on that, that it's not so much the money that matters, it's, it's what you do for people and why you do it and how you do it that matters. And I think that's the most wonderful way to live a life. And I've tried to do that ever since. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. I'm struggling because I'll say it in like a minute because with interviews, you never want to speak really too much yourself, but I can relate very much. I was in, when I was in San Diego, I was part of a church community. This is when I really came to Christ and it was around 23, 24. And Long story short, I started really getting involved in the church, the community, Bible study, diving into the Word, diving into text, and it was fruitful, like you said. I mean, that there's it can help you, it forms you, it allows Christ to come in. But I felt something missing still, and I started volunteering at the homeless shelter and doing that pretty routinely and getting to know them. And I had this big epiphany when Christ says, "When you bring one of these little ones in, you bring me in." That. When reading the word, that's how you can encounter Christ. But in people, you encounter Christ. In in poverty, you encounter Christ. In, in working with individuals and in social justice. And it was a huge epiphany for me. It sounds like that's somewhat similar to you. That's a big way we forget about sometimes. Church, you can encounter him, of course. Scripture, you can. But it's in the people and going out and into the ugly and the broken and the vulnerable and working with them that you really can encounter him. 
It doesn't stop with the ugly and the broken and, and the vulnerable um, because I have met some very, very beautiful people in terms of physical beauty, <laughs> people who are in some kind of strife, and you don't know what it is when you start with them. When you get to know them and you make sure you do get to know them because you know that the Lord wants you to. And then suddenly you find out that these people have been through some terrible trauma and nobody is helping them. We set up a ministry, my wife and I decided that we set up a ministry in Ireland um, called Rathvindon Ministries. The house was called Rathvindon. And I forget how many bedrooms it had, but we often had 20 or 30 people in the house. And we usually had a, a group of at least six or seven undergoing psychotherapy uh, with a system that we had, had been taught. And um, it was very rewarding. It was extremely hard work, very hard work, but it was extraordinarily rewarding. It was just, it was just you, at the end of the time that you were dealing with these people and helping these people, you felt that you really achieved something worthwhile. And that sense of worthwhileness comes to you from God. I, that is something I wanted to dive into a little bit. What that ministry in Ireland, I mean, that's a pretty big endeavor to undertake. I mean, what principles, what moves you to do this? And I don't know if there's some things that you learned from Lewis and from his life or just your own spiritual life, but I mean, what leads to that decision? How we got into that was because I met a man called Dr. Philip Ney, who is a Canadian um, psychiatrist and uh, a very a very fine man. He's very old now. He's a very, very good friend. Haven't actually heard from him for quite a while now, but a good man. And he had devised over many years various ways of helping people who had different kinds of trauma. So he put it all together, and it's called Hope Alive, and you'll find Hope Alive sort of cells all over America and many other places now too. And um, it was he who got onto me. He, he asked me first of all, actually I was sailing my yacht that I had at the time across some of the, the um, <laughs> fairly rough seas north of, uh, of parts of Queensland, and my son James was on board, and he was down below, and I was on the helm. And he suddenly shouted, Daddles, there's someone on the phone needs to talk to you. I said, well, you better can't take the helm. There's only two of us on the boat. So he did. And I went down. It was pretty rough. And um, it was Philip Ney. And he asked me if I could come over and, and address some, some people here and there that he wanted to, to uh, hear about C.S. Lewis and, and hear about various other things. And we did that. And uh, he uh, earlier than that, I'd been over there. And he also said to me, look, you know, um, I said, well, how are things going? He said, well, I'm trying to find a place. To, to, to put up a Hope Alive Center in Ireland. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, um, we're just buying a house in Ireland. And if you give me six months to do it up a bit and get it ready, um, you could certainly use that. And that's what started the whole of the Rathvindon Ministries. We did the course with him several times um, because he taught courses there. And um, he always dragooned us straight in. It didn't matter whether my wife was cooking the meals or something or she would have to get someone in from the village and I would give up what I was doing and, We'd go and study this with him. And eventually we, we became practitioners of it ourselves. And we did that for, I think, about eight years. And uh, then it, the Lord made it quite evident it was time to wind it down. We did, and came to live in Malta. And so you said it was like a, a psychotherapy. Like, what is the type of individual? What, are you, what, what, what were you attempting to do? I'm just trying to wrap my head around that a little bit. Um, was it these individuals in with mental health issues and you were trying to help them from that perspective? It depends. Um, when, you, when you have about, I don't know, a thousand or more people over the few years coming through the place, you're going to get people with different problems all the time. And part of your job, if you're someone who does this kind of work, is to decide or to work out what's wrong with them, what, what's, what's hurting them, why are they so, so hurt, and what you can do and how you can do it to help them. 
Most of that is explained to you in, in the Hope Alive process, which you can, you can join a, a somewhere, you can get someone who teaches it and so on. But um, an awful lot of it is, is probably, it's probably very good for you to have a lousy, have, have a lousy life first. But if you have a really bad um, young upbringing, and a really bad, I mean, both of us, Mary and myself, uh, suffered very badly from our own childhoods. And it took us a while to realize that this is what was driving us crazy at times. And we both went through all this, and it helped us enormously, and therefore we realized it would help other people enormously as well. I mean, my mother and father, for example, my father came back from the Spanish Civil War, a very bad case of PTSD, alcoholism, tuberculosis, and probably a couple of other things I didn't even know about. And um, eventually, all of those things came to a head in, in many ways. Uh, he used to ra rage around the house screaming and shouting and so forth, and scaring the dickens out of me when I was only little. And yet I loved him dearly. And when, when he was in a good mood, he was terrific. But eventually they split up and um, I spent my eighth birthday in a raging North Atlantic gale on a, on a ship going to England because we were moving from, New, from America to England. And um, I, I loved every minute of that actually. But I stood there on the, on the deck hanging onto the rails like grim death and, and loving it. It was my first uh, education of what the sea is like. But then we got to, uh, to England and we lived for a short while in London. And then, of course, my mother eventually um, had already know met C.S. Lewis on a previous trip. I met Jack and got to know him. And, of course, I got to know him then as well. And we lived in a little place in Headington for a while. And then my mother suddenly broke her leg, we thought. In fact, she had actually come down with cancer. And it was eating the bones of her legs and other places. And she was, there was no way she could survive. But Jack prayed and I prayed, and, and, and I won't go through all the details of that, but it was exciting and very, very interesting how it happened. I've probably told other people quite a, lot, quite a few times. But we, I prayed particularly, and Jack prayed particularly. And my mother went into a remission, which lasted for four years. And that was, that was what kept me going, I think. The fact that I was 10 years old when I suddenly realized my mother was dying. And I prayed like crazy that she would be allowed to live. And uh, he said, okay, it's, it's done. So um, she did. She lived on for four years. Then eventually she did die, of course, and Jack and I were left more or less alone. Jack's brother, Warney, who was a wonderful, wonderful guy, Jack's uh, elder brother, he also loved my mother, but in a very different way. And when she died, he just took to the bottle. He was an alcoholic too. And anyway, that, that, about uh, 18 months or so after my mother died, my father came over from America. It was closer than that, but probably about six or eight months after mother died. Dad came over to visit us. And um, it was funny. I was an English schoolboy by then, so I, I just put out my hand and said, how do you do, sir, instead of throwing your arms around him and so on, which American children would do. But anyway, he, he stayed for a while, and then he went back to America, and a short while after that, so it was about 18 months after my mother died, uh, Dad, Dad realized he, had, um, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer of the tongue and throat, and he killed himself, not wanting to sort of force that on his new wife and young children. And um, about 18 months after that, Jack himself died. So it was a pretty miserable childhood, if you see what I mean. So I think that, that and also Mary had her own problems from childhood. Those things let us understand what was going on inside some of these patients that came to us, and most of them, in fact. And, and because we'd been all through it ourselves, we thought that we'd, and we'd also learned from Hope Alive how to do it properly, that we would be able to help them. We helped, I think, quite a lot of people. I, we, I don't know how many people really helped, uh, but quite a few thanked us very profusely when they left. Mm. 
Well, I was just going to say, because for some listeners, you, you just gave a phenomenal um, summary of a lot of your childhood. If you guys want, we'll link it in the show notes. You can, um, the first interview we did with Douglas went to a lot of depth of that stuff. So we'll link that because there might be some new people listening and not as familiar with that. Um, so we'll link that so you guys can go back to that. But what I love that you're sharing right here is it reminds me so much of In Mere Christianity, the chapter on psychoanalysis where he talks about, and this is one of the most profound things that jumped out to me in Mere Christianity the first time I read it. I was 2011 when I was at Oxford and he he mentions how we have this raw material and God judges us based on what we do with the raw material. We are the raw material. It's up, it's up for us to realize that. You see what I mean? It's different. It's, you know, yep. the raw material is given to us because we are the raw material ourselves in a way. And that's, like, that's one of the things I think we have to know and we have to realize to make this work. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on, please. No, I really like that, that, that distinction. I appreciate that. And I like how he, he mentions that because of that, certain people, decisions are easier to make. And so even when I looked at it, he didn't go into this detail, but it's just how I somewhat interpret it. For some people, you might have been raised in a beautiful Christian household that was easier. And some people might have had a really tougher upbringing. And we can't judge people's circumstances. God's looking at uh, what decisions we made based on who we are and our influences and judging based on that side of things. And that really profoundly hit me because, yeah, it's a childhood. The parents you have, you can't choose that. <laughs> no, unfortunately, you can't. No. So, something will wound you more than others. And so I love everything you're describing makes me think of that. And, and you guys doing that ministry in Ireland is profoundly helpful because we need to work through those wounds and those hurts in order to be able to be more vulnerable to people, to love, to experience joy, and to experience Christ too more. Sometimes that's it's hard to when we're very closed off because of hurts and wounds. I think that's absolutely right. Um, but it is interesting that I, I found that the more I was able to help people who had these kinds of problems, the more I could deal with my own problems. He's trying to stop me talking because the, the clock is dinging. That clock is part of my life, and I love it, so I'm glad you heard it. You know, <laughs> The nice thing is you can re, you can re-mention the, anything, and I can just cut that part. Or... Well, don't. You know, keep, keep the clock in, in there. You know, We need to know that time is passing. I like it. He's going to plug me into something here now. What are you plugging me into? I'm just checking that everything is working fine. Oh, okay. Keep going. He's a fuss pot, you know. <laughs> The love-hate relationship. Well, it's not so much that. He just loves his machinery and his stuff. You know, it's not me he loves. It's just the, it's the work. <laughs> I've always enjoyed watching the, these two times. I enjoy watching your guys' dynamic. And uh, we're, always, might have... we're always fighting and wrestling about what is. this COVID is gone, we have to do a tour in America. Yeah, we probably should. We yeah, just like, make a fortune too. <laughs> you would. And it's uh, my favorite line of last the last interview. It didn't make it in because it was in a pre-chit chat, but... Was was Robert when you said it's a love hate relationship? I do the loving, he does the hating. Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> uh, we've known each other for quite a while now, and we get on all right. It's fantastic. Anyway, where were we before he interrupted? Yes, the the psychoanalysis and um, yeah, essentially sharing how our our childhoods and the hurts and the wounds really affect us, and what your ministry that you guys were doing, and how it reminded me a lot of mere Christianity in that chapter on psychoanalysis and. A lot of that's out of our control in the beginning. It's there are two things. There are two things here. We're talking about. Separate, you know, if we're not careful, we'll talk along the long lines. Psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are not quite the same thing. Gotcha. Right. Psychotherapy is a treatment. Psychoanalysis is a, a delving in to understand people, and they do lead very often to treatment as well. But yeah. what, what we did, I think, probably was we were enabled to do it by the fact that we'd been through these traumas ourselves. 
And um, there's, there was a, there's a lovely young lady we, we, we met there whose problem was she couldn't talk. I don't mean there was anything physically wrong with her, but when we were in the session, she just found it impossible to actually bring out what she was worried about and what she was hurting about. And I think she has been, she has been emailing me ever since. This is about probably 20 years ago now. And we're good friends. And I think finally she's, she's found her way to get through what, whatever it was. And, and I, I, I know a certain amount about it, which I can't talk about, obviously. But whatever it was that hurt her and upset her and destroyed her in a sense, um, she's finding ways now to get around it and deal with it. It's taken a very long time, but I'm so, so glad it's happening. She's a lovely little person. I always believe so. Like decisions like that can be influenced. Your faith, your love of Christ can influence you going into that. But those also those experiences of starting that and doing that for eight years probably shaped the way you see Christianity a little bit. Like did did that experience and those interactions with those people and and being with them in that community and those friendships and those relationships. How did that change your understanding or shape some way of how you view Christianity and the Christian life? I don't think it did. I think I think probably what was happening was that I was understanding more of how Jesus worked because of it. Mm. We also had people come to us who didn't, who didn't work. I mean, we had, we had people we failed with, some raving lunatics occasionally. Uh, some, we had a couple of people who were quite dangerous, I think, there at times. And um, mind you, I did own a shotgun. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was, it's what I think it does for the person who's administering the, the training, as it were, the, the, uh, the help, is that you begin to understand that you can't do anything unless Jesus is with you. He provides what you need to do, and he provides what you need to know. And very often at the time, you're not particularly aware of that. Just some fabulous idea will come out of the whole works, because everything's in a book to how to do it. Come out of that, and, and it'll rear up and, and grab you and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's what we should be doing, and we do it. Because we can't do it ourselves. I don't think it's something that we can just go to college and learn how to do it and be successful. We can be successful in making money out of it, but we never charged anybody a cent. That wasn't what we were there for. Whether you can be successful doing book the book sort of stuff that you've learned at college, unless you have Jesus, I don't know. I, I somehow have my doubts, unless you have Jesus in your life. I think probably that's essential to make it really work, you know? We had some lunatics. Yeah, yeah sure, we had some lunatics, some people who scared us. Um, fortunately, I was able to scare them as well. Um, <laughs> every time, every time you mention that word of shotgun, I picture the story of of joy with oh, kids well, or someone trying to come on the kilns. I love. I that. don't think I don't think anybody in 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 Rathfinden ever saw my guns. <laughs> Though actually, it's interesting. I had rifles as well. I was actually um, appointed by the local police as being a police shooter. This does not mean that I shot policemen. It means that I was taken out when they had. <laughs> breaking up over here, uh, when they had something terrible like a horse hit by a car and broken both its legs or something, they, the Irish police officers don't carry guns. So there was no way they could put the poor animal out of its misery. And so one of the, one of the policemen came to me and said, look, would you mind taking this job on for us because we, we, we don't carry guns and we're not allowed to have guns. So I said, well, if you, know, if you need me, just come and get me. And several times I was taken out and had to shoot something, which led to something very funny if we've got time for a little bit of a gag. Um, we had a field. Let's of, hear it. We had a field. We, we were growing of, of hay for a farmer to come and buy the hay and take it away. And he would come with his mower and mow it all down and so forth. I looked out of the window one day and I saw there was about half a dozen young kids, probably not 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 higher than to our knees, you know, a bit older than that, perhaps waist high, perhaps, who were playing in the hay field and making tunnels and, and sort of weaving around through it and then sort of hiding in, in 
I thought, blimey, we've got a, we've got a mower coming in in a few hours. These guys, these kids, I can't chase them. They won't go in Ireland. They just ignore you. So what do I do? And I thought, well, I'm, I know. And I took my old stock whip. Do you know what a stock whip is? It's a leather whip, a plaited leather whip on the end of a bamboo handle. That's about 16 to 17 feet long. And if you know how to crack it, you can make a noise like a very loud gun going off. So I took my stock whip out because I'd been a stockman out in Australia. One of the other things you missed about my life. Um, and uh, I cracked this about six times. And these kids just took off like lightning. You could see them running like crazy. And they ran, apparently, I found out later, they ran all the way down to the village, across the river bridge, up the hill, and up to the police station. And when they got up there, um, the police officer who'd asked me to help uh, was standing there, and, and they, they came rushing in, and he said, what's the matter with you guys? You know, uh, Only with an Irish accent, of course. And um, one of the kids said, that Mr. Gresham down there, he's been shooting at us. And this guy, this officer said, uh, don't be so daft. If Mr. Gresham had been shooting at you, you'd be dead. I've seen him shoot. <laughs> I've seen him shoot. And that was the end of that, you know. And it wasn't until later on when I had to renew my, 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 my gun license that he told me about this. But the kids had never came back. That was it. They were gone. You know? I, I, obviously, I'd never met your mother. I've only read some stories and stuff that you shared. But, man, you sound like you have a lot of her in you. I think probably I do. Uh, I actually have in my gun cabinet a, a, a replica, an exact model, the same make and everything of the little shotgun she bought. It's a little nine millimeter thing. I mean, you couldn't really kill anything with it. It just made bang and pellets spattered off the leaves of the trees, and anybody who was trespassing ran for their lives. <laughs> Thought they were being mowed down. But I've got I one. I managed to find one. Uh, they're very rare nowadays, so I've got one in my cabinet. That's a great story, and that's a good transition. And, and speaking of joy, a little bit because um, one thing I wanted to dive into uh, on this interview was we mentioned in the last one a bit of your pursuit of Mary in. We, we particularly talked about the story of you scraping together and going and visiting her. You take the train or you had to get up and you bought flowers and she was crying and all of that. And so you have a beautiful story and you seem like romantic and Lewis wrote a lot about love and you witnessed Lewis, uh, Jack and your mother's relationship and all of that. And so I'm, I'm genuinely curious, like what did you observe from Jack and Joy, Jack and your mother? And your father and your mother, and that guided your understanding of love in the way that you think of it today. I think the most significant thing that I, I picked up on that was um, when my mother was about to die, the atmosphere in the household completely changed. Warney, for example, my, 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 my stepfather, Jack's brother, was a wonderful guy, by the way. When he had something hit him that he just couldn't, couldn't take on, he couldn't accept himself, couldn't, couldn't deal with, he would turn to whiskey, or gin more likely, and get very drunk. And I noticed when we were, I, I knew that my mother was desperately ill, and I knew that she was going to die. And I was away at a school in, in Clangranog in, in Ireland, in, sorry, in Wales. And they called me back because I thought my mother was going to die sort of straight away. And I came back and, and she, looked, she was looked in such a dreadful state. And, um, but uh, she didn't die, she lived on, went into a sort of brief remission. So I was sent back to the school. And about, I think, 10 days later, uh, again, I was called because she had died. When I got back to the kilns, they dropped me off. They, 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 they got the car out and they drove me all the way back from West Wales, all the way to, uh, to Oxford. Very nice people. And they dropped me off and I went inside and there was Jack standing with one arm on the mantelpiece in what's called the common room. 
and I came through the door and I looked at him and he had changed, he had, he had, he had aged probably 20 years since the week before when I'd seen him. His hair had gone completely white. His face was pale and, and, and gray. And he was standing there with, resting his arm on the mantelpiece. And I just burst into floods of tears. I was 14 years old and 14-year-old boys are not supposed to cry. But I did, I just let it go. And Jack came rushing across to me and he put his arms around me and we just stood there and both of us cried our eyes out. Until finally I said, well, you know, what are we going to do now, Jack? He said, well, I suppose we'll just have to carry on. And then I looked, I, I, I said, you know, you know we, I can't remember how we stopped, how we parted company, but we did. I went out into the garden. And on the way there, I found Warney just with his bottle of gin crying his eyes out. And I walked out into the gardens, which used to be very beautiful there. And Fred Paxford was around. Fred Paxford was our gardener. He was the person who um, became Puddle Glum, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, he was like that. He'd come in in the morning and say, good morning, Fred. And he'd say, ah, it might rain or hail or snow before the afternoon. And he was sort of always expecting the worst and preparing for it. But in any case, um, I went out into the, into the garden and there was a lovely old fence. And I just leant on the fence and I started to cry again. And this massive arm suddenly was draped across my shoulders. And I looked up and there was Fred standing there. And he said, don't cry, Doug. It'll all come out good in the end, you know. And he was tears rolling down his own face. Yeah. So I realized that, you know, um, weeping is not such a bad thing. There are times when one should cry, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Um, there are times when we should cry for other people, not just for the person we've lost, but for the people they've lost. I, I think that probably you can help people sometimes by crying with them. I know it helped me when Fred cried with me and when Jack cried with me and Warney cried with me. I don't know if that in any way answers your question. But. It does. And it actually leads to, I, we asked a bunch of, I have other questions. I was going to save some of these listener ones um, for a bit later, but one of them replies directly to this. We had a lot of listeners that were excited and we like to ask them and give them a chance to ask a couple. But one of our listeners asked this, very related to it. On August 30th, 1960, Lewis writes to Arthur, as we know, just a solid forever friend. On the passing of joy, he says, Douglas, the younger boy, is, as always, an absolute brick in a very bright spot in my life. Her question was, do you know the stability you had as a child that you gave Jack at that age? And was that just natural? Um, or, and she said, was it a bond or an effort that you naturally created or allowed with your own children as a father? There seemed to be some stability and some rock there that you were with Lewis in that time period. Well, yeah, I think, I think that looking back on it, I think I probably was um, someone he could rely on and, and someone he could, he could turn to when things were, were really grim. Um, mm. But he was a very, a very brave and noble man himself. And I would sometimes walk into the kitchen to find him crying, and I would just sit down next to him and cry with him. As I said, crying with people can help enormously. But um, we got on very well together, and Warney and I got on very well together as well, even though uh, you know, the person we loved had, was gone. And I suppose, in a way, we started to spread the love that we used to have for my, for my mother amongst ourselves. And uh, I did everything I could for Jack, and I did everything I could for Warney, and they did everything they could for me. So I think that sort of gelled into a, into a great sort of circle of, of love, of helping each other, basically, in every way we could. Um, it was a difficult time for a while. Uh, it wasn't until we, we really got to realize that we could help each other that I think these, this really came to the fore. 
Sounds like it's a very self-sacrificial love to each other. In a sense, I suppose you could say that. But we would, we, I think each one of us, certainly me, I would be very distressed if I found Warney crying and couldn't stop him, couldn't help him stop. Or if I found Jack crying and couldn't help him stop. And they would feel the same way about me. If I was weeping, they would help me. I think, it was, it, I think it's, it's probably more of a natural thing among young, young people and old people who actually love each other. I don't think it's something one, one can enact. But something you've, something you've just said, I don't know what, um, raised a thing in my mind. I'm not a Christian because I want to be. I'm a Christian because Jesus wants me to be. And I think there are two very different things to talk about. And I'm so we grateful could go down, We could go down a big tangent there. I'm, <laughs> I'm reading could. Ephesians in a Bible study group right now, and that's a very big part of Ephesians is talking about that, like God destined us from the beginning of time and adopted us as his sons. And oh my goodness, there's such, there's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah, there is an awful lot there, but it's, I, I always try to put these things down to the simplest play of saying them, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'm also curious, so so you witnessed this this relationship between uh, Joy and Jack, uh, your stepfather and your mother. What have you learned? You also have, a, you have such a beautiful relationship with Mary, and we've heard that in the last episode, particularly as you were talking about even simple things of being in this COVID environment and the struggles of being away and missing her so much. What have you learned even since the passing of your mother and your stepfather, who obviously taught you a lot, and you saw a beautiful relationship there. What have you learned in your own relationship with Mary about love and what love is? That's a very difficult question because for a long time I was very sick. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, a, a disease that was unknown at the time by medicine, uh, except for a few very, very clever doctors. It was called systemic candidiasis. And what happens is that the, um, this candida, candida is called which is normally there in the intestine anyway, breaks out, as it were, through the intestinal wall and gets into the veins and arteries and so forth and starts to consume all the stuff you're supposed to be eating and, fl share and, and flourishing off. And I got thinner and thinner and thinner and I, got very, I started to go slightly crazy and I, got, I just got very, very sick. And it wasn't until a particularly brilliant doctor suddenly said, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. It was a female doctor actually in Hobart in Tasmania. And she said, take a shirt off. And she drew a sort of checkerboard pattern on the back of my shirt, back of my back. <laughs> anyway, and, um, you know, a checkerboard on it. And she then put in there little dabs of all the different you know, injections of all the different um, food substances that she had on the stock. And there were dozens of them, a whole checkerboard on my back. She said, right, go into the other room and wait there for a few minutes. I'll come and get you in about 15 minutes' time. We'll see if any of these things react. And when I came back in and took my shirt off, she looked at me and said, good God. You are allergic to everything. And that suddenly it gelled in my mind instantly that that's why I was so sick. I, I couldn't take anything that I was eating. So she started to put me on some very difficult drug, drugs about, you know, 21 pills a day of this or that and the other thing. Eventually, of course, as this progressed, people began to realize that this was a serious illness. And uh, the, 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 drug, the drugs that one used now are much, much better than they used to be. But she saved my life. And um, that turned me around as a human being uh, in the way I behaved to my children and the way I behaved to my wife uh, because I was in pain emotionally and in pain psychologically and in pain physically for year after year after year with this thing. And it wasn't until this very, very clever doctor uh, treated me and I got out of it. I didn't really know what all this wonderful business of suddenly being different was like. I mean, I'd never been that well before. It took me a while to get used to it. And then I started to realize I needed to apologize, which I did. I apologized to my sons and I apologized to my, my wife and so on. 
and I got enormously better. And my relationship with Mary started um, <laughs> on, a, on a railway station platform, as a matter of fact, in, uh, in Somerset in England. Um, I was working on a farm as a student before I went to college. And one day Lady Mallet, who was Sir Edward's wife, who owned, they owned the farm, came in waving a piece of paper. And uh, she said, oh, Doug, you'll love this. Mary's coming to stay. And I said, well, who's Mary? She said, she's our niece. And I said, well, how old is she? And I was about 17 and a half or nearly 18 at the time. And she said, oh, she's 21. And I said, oh, that's much too old for me. And Harry, the son of the family, said, oh, no, anything with, a, with, with trousers on is good enough for Mary. And just joking and teasing. And everybody laughed. And then we, we were told, well, you know, you both need haircuts. So you have to, why don't you go down, take the car, go down to, to Taunton. Um, yeah, Harry and I were sent down to Taunton, first of all, to get our haircuts. And secondly, to pick up this woman, this, this, this girl who was coming with her friend from London to stay for a week. And we stood, it was freezing cold for some reason. We stood on the platform. This was in the days when you still had steam trains. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but there were lots of them in my youth. Anyway, this thing roared into the, into the, uh, into the platform and came to a screeching halt. And about 200 people got off the train. And I looked across and I saw this girl stepping off the train. And I turned to Harry and I said, Harry, and he said, what? I said, see that girl over there? And he said, which one? There's hundreds of them. And I said, well, the one with the long blonde hair and the such and such a dress on and so on. And he said, yeah, what about her? I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And he said, don't be stupid. That's my cousin. <laughs> it took me three years and a lot of work and every cent I owned in the world, but she finally agreed to marry me. And um, we, hope, we hate being separated. I mean, we've been together for over 50 years now. And when I was in the, on the island for nearly two months over in, over in Australia, un unable to see her or do anything except text with her backwards and forwards and occasionally talk on the phone, it drove me nearly nuts. I nearly went crazy because I just, I just can't be without her for that length of time. And I think she feels much the same way about me. We hate being separated. So uh, we've had our fights, of course, and we still have our arguments. But we can really blaze at each other. And then in about 20 minutes, it's all over and we're, we're just back the way we should be. Um, because both of us rely on Christ rather than ourselves. So, you know, it's, um, I would hate, I, I, one thing, of course, we both dread is one of us dropping dead and the other one not, you know. <laughs> but um, we're both in our 70s now. So this is one of the reasons we're a little bit worried about this COVID-19 with the sort of people who could be killed by it. Mm -hmm. So we're very careful about that. What, what advice would you give to individuals about what you've learned about marriage itself? Because obviously you... You have a, a your 56 or 57 years, I think you mentioned last time. And yeah, I, I'm curious, if, I've, as in a world where marriage seems to be under attack and what it is and what it means, and as people, you're so much taught, it's like, oh, what do you get out of marriage? Rather than as we read in scripture, marriage is so much of like the relationship between Christ and the church and that self-emptying and pouring into something. Like, what have you learned and what advice would you give from your own marriage? I think the first thing that's, that's necessary to learn is that marriage has been so distorted over the past 50 years that it no longer means what it should mean. Mary and I have been together for 57 years. We do not want to be anywhere else at all. We don't want to be separated. We don't want to, we, we, we just, you know, we go along till God decides to take one of us to himself. But I think it's the, the, the important thing that people have lost about marriage it's not something you just do for the fun of it. It's something extremely serious. It's very, very important in life. And the people who have children uh, outside of marriage, 
rarely stay together in my, in my experience. And when you do that, you destroy the emotional abilities of the children and you ruin their whole thinking procedures. And I think what's going to happen is this whole civilization, as we mockingly call it these days, um, will dissolve into a complete mess. And the only people who will survive this emotionally and psychologically will be the people who got married and had children and the children got married and so on. It is a strong bond between two people which cannot be broken and will not be broken even when one of them dies. I mean, Jack and Warney both loved my mother. Warney loved her in a very different way from Jack. But they, they, they still loved her even after she was dead. And I think which, if Mary dies or if I die, the one surviving will still love the one who's gone. It won't, it won't change things. So I'm curious, what, what, what legacy would you like people to remember you as? I always feel like you can learn a lot about a person from that in your life. Do you know, I, I don't really know. I'm not sure I want people to remember me at all. Uh, I don't think it's necessary. Um, but if, if there are people, and I know there probably are lots of people, whom, whom I've helped and who, who love me and whom I love, I would like, rather like to think that when they think about me, they have a warm feeling in their heart. Not much more than that, really. I mean, look, there are, there are lots and lots of... This is, this is the, cra- the crazy part about it. There are lots of people whom I love, hundreds of them, if not more than that. I don't see them all the time. I don't see them very often. In fact, some of the people I love the best, I see the rarest, most infrequently. But that doesn't stop me loving them. And um, as I say, I never want to be separated from Mary again if I can avoid it, not for any length of time. I mean, I have to go on business trips and so forth, but that's a different kettle of fish altogether. If I'm stuck on an island again for two months without her, I will go completely insane. I'll try not to, but I'm not quite sure that'll work. My, my friend Robert over here is nodding his head about me being insane. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't really... I don't really have a desire that people will remember me and put plaques in churches for me and all that sort of thing. It's not in my, my thinking pattern. Sorry, I do hope the people that I have helped will remember me enough to make the help permanent. In other words, they'll go on doing, being what they are and, and, and res- hoping that restoration goes on forever for them. I think that's very telling about your relationship with Christ because humility is... Not thinking less of yourself, but think about yourself less. So your goal isn't what people remember of you, Douglas Gresham, yourself. It's, it's what they remember of Christ. At the moment, I just want them to send me spending lots of money. I mean, if they send me money, I'd love them. You know? No, not true. <laughs> not true at all. So by, by the same logic, if I may... He's butting in, but yeah. Yes. Uh, I love it. You, you see me more often. That means you love me less. So. Uh, no, that's just the way it happens to be. It, 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 it's not that I love anybody less because I see them too often. Ah. Uh-huh. You know? Going for like so, got out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and listeners, that's that's Robert. He's uh, um, doing a documentary with Douglas, but he's also just a very close friend of of Douglas. And so we love. Oh my goodness, you guys don't get to see the, the pre chit chat. We talked about fifteen minutes before. You guys will be able to hear any of that stuff. And they have a wonderful relationship. <laughs> he's also married uh, to a very beautiful woman, by the way. Ah, Robert, maybe we will have to interview you and ask you some questions. <laughs> But by that, by that time, you must understand the podcast will become a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. That's my role. My co-host, David, uh, he's, he's the much more serious intellectual. I try to just you know, recognize the, the fun and the, the humor and the joy parts of the things, of life and all of this. Well, I can tell you very easily how to, how to make sure that happens. And that is, that, 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 <laughs> I that appreciate is, that, that. No, it's quite simple. You simply love everybody. You love the human race. You love the human people you meet, everyone you meet. 
you should always be prepared to help them if they need it. That's what Jack did. I remember that Jack was walking with Tolkien um, in some street in Oxford. And um, what you would call a stumble bum, I suppose, or a guy who was drunk and so forth, came tottering over and said, uh, you know, excuse me, Governor, but I I'm starving. I haven't had anything to eat for two days. Have you got any spare change? Jack immediately put his hand in his pocket and pulled out all his change. He had quite a lot of money. And he held it out, and the guy held his hands out, and Jack poured this into his hands. And as they walked away, Tolkien said, Jack, you shouldn't have given that man all that money. He'll only spend it on, on, on drink. Jack said, well, if I'd kept it, I would have only spent it on drink. He actually knew the feelings of that man when he saw him desperate. And even if he was going to spend it on drink, it would be better than him spending it, not having it to spend. And Jack was able to, to give him what. And, but Jack gave away huge amounts of money um, all his life. And uh, it, it's simple. You love people. And you love people because they're people. Not because they're good-looking, not because they've got good boobs or any of that stuff, but because they're people and they need to be loved. And that was one of my favorite interviews of yours. It was about 30 minutes on YouTube, and you talked about Jack's charity, and you told that story, and it moved me, um, honestly, to tears. This, it was just, you also talked about his ability to, someone would stop him on the road, and he might talk for, the person might be just talking his ear off, and he might have been going somewhere, but he would just give that person his undivided attention. And I don't do that. I'm, I have a lot of things going on. I schedule out and I think this is my time. And that's dangerous because maybe that's God interrupting it. It's never your time. Uh-huh. Jesus's time. Yep. And if he chooses to use it his way, be grateful. It means he trusts you. Two, uh, to, to, for the sake of time, I'll bring it, but two final questions. One, I'm curious, were there any spiritual principles, lessons, anything that Jack, that you learned from Jack that we don't necessarily see in books from his. Maybe he wrote it all. Maybe you see Mere Christianity, Screwtable Letters, all these that we've read. But are there any that it's like, you know what, this one's not talked about as much. This was something I learned from him just personally. Well, only that he taught me not to drink too much whiskey. Um, <laughs> things like that. But no, I, I think really Jack was, Jack's, Jack's relationship with God is best um, found in his books, because he meant them to be permanent. Uh, most of the time at the dinner table, we, we, we laughed. You know, even when things are really, really bad, it, we had great fun at the dinner table. And sometimes something Christian. I mean, there's a time when, when Jack said, um, oh, I can't remember, it's gone. But anyway, there were, there were times at the, at the dinner table when Jack and, and Warney would, and, and my mother would be bouncing gags off each other. But there were never gags that were limiting or hurting or anything like that. They were always gags that sort of made you feel better. And we, we had a lot of time laughing. Every now and again, I'd come up with one that worked, and I was so pleased with myself that I did. There was something, something, something um, Jack said, my, and, and I can't remember what my mother said. But she gave him a chore? Yeah, gave him a chore, something to do. Did you forget? Did you do so-and-so? And, and, and Jack said, what do you take me for, a fool? My mother said, no, I took you for better or worse. You know? <laughs> that is really brilliant. Well, it's the sort of thing that that went on around the table. Um, this is, this is when my brother wasn't there, of course. I don't talk much about my brother, but he's dead now, so I can't do him any harm by talking to him. He was a paranoid schizophrenic mm -hmm. and a dangerous one. And I spent most of my childhood trying to avoid being killed by him, actually, and, and I succeeded. As you can see, I'm still here. Occasional, <laughs> occasional scars on fingers and things. But uh, you know, he died a short while ago, and I missed him, and I, I, I wept for him, even though he spent most of his time trying to do away with me. Mm -hmm. But um, when he was at the table, it was a very different kettle of fish. You couldn't, you couldn't joke around David. Anyhow, that's all over. Next question, yeah. you had one more you wanted to ask. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, just a little comment on that. That that was something that actually one of our listeners wanted me to ask, but you already answered it. That was the fact that it seems like the biographers didn't capture Lewis's humor and joyful and laughter side near as much as I hear from you and I hear from, I think Walter Hooper maybe had told a story of like stacking books of a person sleeping and I read this and he put them all around and the person wakes up and crashes. Like Lewis was just full of laughter, joy, childlike humor in a beautiful sense. And so it's something that's just not captured. So I love that you just shared that. So listeners realize Sometimes you watch Shadowlands and it seems like Anthony Hopkins is just very just sober looking and somber <laughs> and serious and stuff. And it's like, that's not the Jack that I have a mental picture of. Even when his wife was dying, he was still full of fun, as much mm. as he could be. Um, and he yeah. was because he didn't want to inflict his own pain on other people. So he would laugh with them instead. And I think that's, I hu- I think that's hugely noble and, and, and brave, personally. And I try to do the same. I'm not very good at it yet, but I'll practice. I don't know. I, I find myself laughing around you quite frequently. So you're doing, I'm glad to you're hear it. Well. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but my, my final question was, you might have heard it in the introduction, that this season we're doing screw tape letters. We just finished Till We Had Faces last season, which your last uh, interview went out during that season. We're actually in between seasons, so we're starting up from when we're recording this. We're starting in about two weeks, and this will be a little bit after that still. But anyways, I'm just curious if you have any advice from the screw tape letters or your experience of reading it that you would give listeners as we dive into this, as we unpack this. We're going letter by letter every single Tuesday and just understanding what Lewis is communicating through that, through screw tape and Wormwood. I think the most important advice I can give you is when you have studied the book, put it down for about a month and pick it up and read it. Don't study it, just read it. And then whenever you're feeling down and out, whenever you're feeling miserable, pick it up and read it. It's a book I read over and over again. In fact, I, I give away copies too. But that and um, A Grief Observed are two books which have done an amazing amount of good in the world, even though you wouldn't think so to, to look at them. A Grief Observed is a book that I buy in batches of six. And when I know of someone that's going to go through that process, I will, I will give them a copy. Mm. Because Jack really, really understood how to deal with grief. And he, he points it out in that book. I love that. That's coming up, uh, might be in two seasons from now, we're going to dive into A Grief Observed. Well, I have a problem with it in that I cry a lot <laughs> when I'm reading it. <laughs> yeah, I would, I, I've actually, that's one of the uh, few of his I have not read yet. Oof, well, get on with it. <laughs> I know. The problem when you're doing this is now David actually kind of enjoys, he's read, like I think pretty much every one of Lewis's work. I've read many of them. But it's, it's, there's somewhat of an interesting dynamic. So I hadn't read Till We Have Faces. And he had, so for me to go through this as he's already done it as more of a first-time experiencer, there's a bit of a dynamic that's interesting to bring to that. And then he can bring more of the person who's read it multiple times. Something you should know about Till We Have Faces is that my mother wrote it with him. Mm. Jack, originally Jack wanted to publish it under both their names. But my mother said, no, don't do that, because if you do, um, it'll limit the number of people who want to buy the book. He was, <laughs> he was a Jewish person, you know. So he didn't, because she insisted he didn't. But she was um, at least half the book. And wow. to me, it comes right through and hits me in the face every time I read it. I reread it just the other day, as a matter of fact. Um, it's a wonderful story. It's incredibly beautiful. And it's, it's, it's a, a, a book that could only have been written, or half written at least, by a woman. And a very, very bright and intelligent woman at that, as my mother was. And um, no, she, he, he just wouldn't, she wouldn't let him sell it under her name as well as his own. 
Well, now I'm going to selfishly want to sometime in the future interview you on your thoughts of specifically till we have faces because that was just <laughs> such a great book. We just went through it. And now that I've pretty much spent 40 weeks diving into it each week, going through about two chapters and talking about it, it's, it'll be fascinating sometime to hear your perspectives. Could you imagine that book being written by an elderly Don from Oxford's university? <laughs> Not had, in the slightest. It just, you just, it just doesn't happen. It obviously and it's had so huge, different from his other work, too, well, it had in, huge, in some sense. That's because my mother's half the book. Yep. Huge influence from my mother. She was every bit as good a writer as Jack was, but in a very different way. Because she was a woman and he was a man, you know. Oh, well, that, that's it for my questions. I mean, genuinely, thank you so much, Douglas, for, uh, for coming on again for a second time and sharing your life and the stories and what you've learned and the principles. I love learning principles and lessons from what people have lived because it's so much that we, we're all so similar. We can learn from each other's experiences. So I want to thank you specifically for myself and for all of the listeners for coming on a second time and sharing the way Christ has worked through you and your relationship with Christ and how it's impacted you and impacted others. And, and I'm just so impressed by the way you've touched people's lives. Well, I think it's Jesus touching people's lives through me rather than me touching their lives. But I do enjoy the process. I love being loved and I love loving people. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how simple it is there. It is. It's just that simple. It really is. Well, with those great words, guys, we come to a close here, and it's always a privilege to be able to interview Douglas. We've had him on before, so if you actually haven't heard the first interview, definitely go check that out. It was more about Lewis's life. This time, we got to spend diving into his own life and life after Lewis and what he learned. And so I really hope you guys enjoyed that interview. It's such a privilege to have him on. We are so grateful for his presence, for his wisdom, for his witness, his testimony. And guys, we would love for you guys to follow us on Instagram, social media, Twitter, YouTube. We've got all of these different channels that are bringing different aspects. Instagram brings quotes. Twitter just brings great interactions. YouTube brings other content. So please go check those out. Uh, if you guys really enjoy this ministry and it's impacted your life and you'd like to support it, we have a Patreon and it's been a blessing. We've had so many people support us. It helps us cover the production costs of this, the editing costs, and to allow these to be high quality episodes. And we also have a Slack community, which has been growing robustly and tons of daily activity full of different listeners who support us and just I'm so blessed by it. It's one of my favorite parts about this ministry is that Slack community. So if you guys want to join that and you support us on Patreon, you can you can be a part of that. Uh, and as always, guys, we're just so grateful for you. Uh, we thank you guys. If you will leave us a rating, that's so helpful. Leave us comments. We read every single one of them. And we so look forward to joining you guys next week when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers, guys. <laughs>